Welcome to the Disability and Podcast, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Disability Arts Online have been taken over. Alan James Burns has been invited on a content takeover, and we leave it to him to introduce this month's podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Disability and Podcast. My name is Alan James Burns. I'm an audiovisual artist, curator, producer, creating interactive, socially engaged and site-specific exhibitions. In my practice, I look at topics such as disability, climate change and the human mind. I'm currently doing a content takeover to Disability Arts Online, looking at the intersection of disability and the climate emergency. Today, I'm joined by Professor Julia Watts-Belser, who is a professor of Jewish Studies and Disability Studies at Georgetown University and a senior research fellow at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace and World Affairs. She directs Disability and Climate Change, public archive project, an initiative that documents the wisdom and insights of disabled activists, artists and first responders on the front line of the climate crisis. I'm delighted to be chatting to Julia today about my artistic practice exploring the climate emergency and the disability experience. As well as discussing our creative practices, we are going to talk more broadly about our experiences as creative petitioners, members of the disability community and concerned climate activists. Julia, Maybe you could start and tell us about the Disability and Climate Change Initiative you direct and why it is so crucial that conversations about climate change involve the disability community. Alan, thanks so much. First, thank you for the invitation to be in conversation with you today. It's a huge pleasure to get to uh, think with you more about your own work and also share a few of my own projects and insights and just dive into these uh, questions together. Thanks for asking about the Disability and Climate Change Initiative that I direct. We call it a public archive project, in part because the work centers on documenting and witnessing the insights of disabled practitioners, whether activists, artists, first responders, folks who are in various ways navigating climate questions or climate-intensified disaster response, um, to think about the particular vulnerabilities and also insights that disabled people bring to questions of climate change. I think at the heart of the archive are a series of Q&A style conversations with disability cultural leaders. Mostly it's written texts, um, but written in an accessible, engaging format that's meant for um, to be easy to read and accessible. Uh, we have a few short, very short audio pieces as well, audio snippets. Um, we call them audio portraits, a kind of glimpse into the, um, the voice and the worlds of particular activists and artists. We also have some plain language and some Spanish language materials. And, you know, I'd say at heart, there's three key aims to the project. First, to document the disproportionate harm that disability communities face from climate change. Second, to lift up the way that disabled people have been developing particular skills or expertise for navigating climate disruption. 
I think it's sometimes really easy to see the way that we are more at risk. Um, and so while that's obviously a crucial part of the conversation, I also want to show how we as disabled folks have particular affinities for or expertise for responding to climate questions. And then third, we document disability cultural wisdom. So often I think that's ephemeral, it's shared like in a Zoom room over across a kitchen table. It's not documented in ways that other people outside the community are able to get a glimpse of. And so in that sense, this is a kinship, it feels like, to me between your work, the work of a lot of disabled artists working on climate questions, um, and my own documentary work to think about how do we better tell the stories uh, both of climate emergency itself, but particularly of the way disabled folks are interacting with, responding to, and grappling with climate questions. I really enjoyed what, looking around the archive and reading all the interviews. Uh, and I'm, So I'm dyslexic and the, I, I kind of did find all the interviews quite kind of accessible for me to kind of digest and take in and the format of them. Makes me so happy to hear that. We actually really worked with a team that works on curating the pieces as a combination of work with uh, Georgetown students um, who've taken classes with me, but who in the project really work to kind of create both simple, but hopefully really engaging, um, compelling narratives. Um, and I think that question of um, how to tell climate stories in a way that speak to, um, speak to a broad audience, something that's really central to my, to my thinking. I think that can, that comes across really well within the archive. I wonder, as we're thinking about these questions of what neurodivergent folks, what we bring to the kind of conversation about climate, I wonder if we could turn to talk about your project, Augmented Body, Altered Mind, because I think there's some really interesting shared resonance here around this question of recognizing, in your case, neurodiversity as a kind of asset for thinking about and engaging with climate questions. Can you talk a little bit more about that, that project? So it's, a, it's an artwork that I've been creating or developing. It's, to be honest, it's more of like a series of works or a project, a that I've been developing over a number of years using brain-computer interfaces. So devices that you put on your head and it takes electrical brainwave data from your head. You Looking at that to create interactive or participatory artworks and how then by engaging that medium, that technology, how I can then discuss the intersection of neurodiversity and climate change on top of that. So Augmented Body of the Mind is an interactive artwork where audiences come in to sit down, to put on a head, headset uh, and to activate the artwork. So it's a projected, like a projected environment with a surround sound setup. So the visuals are kind of inspired and span imagery of like environmental, climate and neurological inspired imagery. And which is controlled by the viewer's brainwaves. And then there's a dialogue uh, that accompanies this artwork by two neurodivergent people uh, discussing how they relate to 
the climate and to the environment and how they understand the climate emergency from their lived experiences of neurodiversity. What I find really interesting about it is because once you're working with a brain, like brain computer interfaces, that really engages audiences and really engages people with, because of that technology, people are like, oh, my brain waves are connecting. But then when you kind of engage people through that, you kind of open them up into newness into kind of understanding nuances or differences different perspectives, which is then allows me to start to kind of delving into how to, the, the, the intersection of neurodiversity and climate change. So the brainwaves of individual viewers are actually shaping and affecting the art that's created. We are getting to see visually uh, a kind of visual representation of viewers' internal responses both to the um, to the art itself, but particularly to the dialogue um, that you've described of two neurodivergent folks in conversation about climate change. Yes, in many ways, but then also in some ways, like it's the artwork is you know there's a program and it's algorithm, so it is predetermined in some ways. It's not so it's not a scientific you know you're not really seeing someone's thoughts or brain, but I have created visuals that the brainwaves of the participant uh, does interact and change. So like one of the visuals kind of changes, goes, it kind of looks like a an arid, dry desert. And then there's another visual that's quite like kind of glacial ice sheets. And depend, the, the, the viewer's brainwaves can kind of change between what the visual, between those two types of visuals. Uh, and kind of can change the speed, intensity, the color intensity uh, of these visuals and it moves throughout it. So there's also different types of like neurological inspired visuals uh, that the, and the brain can kind of, the, the, the participants' brainwaves can kind of change which, what you're looking at on screen. But there is a, a creative interpretation behind it. So so, and that then, so there is a dialogue that, that participants are listening to. And obviously that dialogue kind of, we're all, we all take in data and our brain activity is a kind of moving around with what we're taking in all the time. So that dialogue is affecting someone's brainwaves activities, which in turn affects the, the imagery. However, in saying that, the material, the, the technology that I'm using is kind of consumer and dry BCIs, which so there's wet and there's dry BCI brain computer interfaces. Uh, if you want to get like a clean, accurate scientific reading, you need to put on like gels and uh, like wet people's heads with uh, to get conductivity. But we don't do that when in an exhibition setting. But we don't need to because it's the artwork is more about a con. It's kind of more driving thinking around the con- these these concepts. I'm not collecting. I'm not collecting data. I'm not. Uh, it's not a scientific experiment. It's a, an artwork that shines, that kind of holds a mirror to these conversations rather than a, and using this technology as a kind of a creative medium. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in that. I think in part because I, in my own work, I'm interested in the question of whether and how disabled or neurodivergent folks might both feel and respond differently to climate questions. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to know if that's a question that feels resonant for you, if that's something that you're um, that you're also getting at here. Actually, in augmented body alter mind, it kind of that comes true. I kind of deal a lot with or I kind of question or explore that a lot within the dialogue. So I created a dialogue with writer Shantrika Narayama Mohan and Carrie's Coburn Gray. 
and we kind of developed it as a conversation between two people exploring and the conversation kind of it's a 15 minute kind of narrative where they delve into systems of the world that kind of perpetrate climate change, but also like ableist systems and how they're how these two characters kind of interact and perceive within the systems that we all live in. So one of the characters is identifies as dyslexic and one of the characters identifies as autistic. And we were kind of so between the kind of the writers, we all kind of have these perspectives to add into the artwork. For me, I'm dyslexic, ADHD and exploring autism. And one thing that I know is that like my dyslexic brain kind of connects and sees loads of different novelties and nuances within how we live and work within the world that don't make sense and that don't add up. When I see things that don't quite add up, I kind of can't unsee it and I can't kind of ignore it because it's cre- I've and I then need to kind of try and address that or change it. I think that piece that you named, Alan. Um about not being able to unsee it, it feels very resonant to me. I'm a wheelchair user um, and my own physical disability has given me a much more acute sense of risk when it comes to climate crisis. Well, I'll give you an example. This summer in in the U.S., we had some really, really significant, intense days of wildfire smoke wafting down from the terrible wildfires in um, in Canada. Of course, this is something that's been really familiar to folks on the West Coast um, for many years. But for many of us on the East Coast, this was a really striking kind of encounter with direct climate impacts. Um, and I remember one morning I, you know, went to go outside and the smoke just caught me. I felt my lungs seize up and I felt so acutely the differential experience, the disproportionate impact that that smoke had on my own disabled body. And I think it's very risky actually to generalize about disabled people, you know, et cetera, as a group. But I think I've become interested in trying to understand whether there are generative effects that might also come from vulnerability. So I don't want to romanticize it or talk it up like, oh, we should all experience vulnerability. That'd be good. No, quite the contrary. But I am very interested in the way that that this recognition of physical risk might at times help sort of sharpen our attention or maybe it's soften our attention. I don't know, but allow us to engage more deeply with climate questions because of, you know, similar to what you named, um, it's hard to unsee, it's harder to ignore. Um, Of course, we can experience overwhelm and think, well, what the heck are we going to do about it? And then, so not to say it's an easy solution, but I am intrigued by that question of how recognizing a sense of um, the stake that we have, the stake, the, the closeness of our own bodies and minds to these questions, how that might change the way that we relate to them. 
I've often thought of that and I've often thought like in how my vulnerabilities have like shaped who I am. So like, you know, I'm, I'm also queer as well as disabled. And I often think that like because of that, I was forced into recognizing and seeing different ways of living that might be more healthier uh, and more a supportive or generative to other people as well as other planets and animals and I guess that's what we're kind of talking about it's like those like when you when you're experienced that vulnerability you understand the, the, the repercussions of it or you understand the, the effects of it and, and I guess that probably does come to how I've kind of seen the environment as well so I've always and I and now there's a there's a bit of a two question thing there because within AD, neurodivergence and ADHD and in special and autism there's like hyper focus interest and special special interests where I I resonate with or I kind of feel attuned with I feel like I have an importance or a connection with uh, and for me one of them is the kind of the, the environment and the climate uh, and how and my entire life I've kind of been uh, trying to implement better ways of living uh, so uh, I grew up on a farm in rural Ireland, uh, which, and I was always kind of chastating or kind of giving out to my father about uh, the way that kind of they were working the land. And I was like a f- 10 year old kid, not knowing much, but it was always something that like, I just, I felt, I always kind of felt, I, I, I you know, I was kind of given knowledge around the damage we were doing to the planet and I kind of felt an affinity or a reason that that I had, it, it was more of a kind of a like a, a spiritual or kind of a connection with the land that I was having uh, and I could feel for it I could I was empathizing and maybe that does come from my own vulnerabilities and ways of living that's so beautiful to me, Alan, this, what you're describing about the connection with the land and the sense of empathy there. Um, and as a wheelchair user myself, I have a very close relationship with land and ground. Um, in my new book, um, Loving Our Own Bones, one of the things I write about is the way that my experience as a wheelchair user has has really brought me into very close relationship with with land and earth. I think this is sometimes somewhat paradoxical to people because there's a notion that, um, you know, wheelchairs are like, you can't go out, um, you can't be out. I mean, farms are in fact quite, probably quite difficult. Um, But I I feel the vibrations of the ground, right? Whenever I move, I feel the, the echo, the literal vibration of the of the surface and the ground flows up through my caster wheels and through the frame of my wheelchair and into my body. Um, And so I think that's deeply shaped my own sense of connection to the earth, to place. Um, It shaped the way I think about environmental work. It, you know, I know the literal lay of the land of every place I've ever lived on wheels. And that strong sensory memory for terrain, for the the feeling of moving through certain spaces and places, I, I think there's a kind of kinship there, a closeness that really interests me um, in terms of this kind of environmental affinity that I hear you naming as well. 
how my uh, kind of neurodivergence or disabilities kind of give me like similar but different uh, resonances uh, to the land and to earth uh, like exactly and that different connect different a different type of connection that allows me to explore the earth in different ways so for me I think I'm made like I was create like my body and um, was created to be outdoors I, I need to be on the move I need to be going I need to be active I love terrain and climbing and interacting and getting my hands dirty now being an artist I'm kind of more I'm always on the administration always at a computer so someone who, who might be hearing this might not think this is true <laughs> but I don't get that enough either I don't I'm not outdoors because I need to be at a computer because it takes me hours to write something or to read something uh, so I don't have time to get out. Growing up in a farm, I climbing trees, hugging, hugging. I used to hug trees as, as a kid. I still <laughs> and, hug trees. <laughs> okay, I do too. <laughs> Let's not age out of it. <laughs> yeah, okay, true, yeah. But that was, what, that, 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 when I, when I done that, when I was out, and uh, that kind of really also re- cemented my connection to the earth uh, as well. I love this, what you're naming about your your own sense of your feeling, the feeling that your body was made to be outdoors. Um, and of course, there's so much of your life that works against being able to be in outdoor spaces. There's a lot of screens. Um, there's a yes. lot of <laughs> obligations. Uh, but I love that that thought of the the yearning that your body and mind know for being outside. I might like to ask you then about an element of your practice. I've noticed that you make a lot of site-specific work as an artist. And I'm really drawn to that. I'm very interested in it, in part because I think as a person, I'm just really interested in specificity of place and terrain. But I also think from a disability perspective, and maybe here I'm just thinking with my own disability experience, But I think about the way that working outdoors and working with specific sites can also be quite daunting, right? I'm thinking about access considerations. I'm thinking about the fact that for me, if it rains, it makes the terrain, you know, getting off the pavement virtually impossible, right? All of those things, when we work outside, when we work outdoors, there's so much about the environment and the climate that we can't control. I mean, that's actually, I think, a big part of the issue. Um, but it's a really interesting and, and I imagine complex dimension artistically. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yes. And like, obviously, the way and with the kind of with climate to climate change and climate emergency, those aspects of the environment and the climate are becoming more unpredictable. Is this is the word? A lot of my practice uh, does kind of explore site specific works. So I might just actually kind of explain one or two and then kind of use that to <laughs> and then use that to kind of to, to delve, delve into different topics more um one of my artworks is in a piece called entirely hollow aside from the dark and it was a 
It's an audio installation inside underground caves that I toured around the UK and Ireland in 2017-2019. And I worked with a writer, Sue Rainsford, and composer Ian Dunphy. And we created an audio piece in the form of an inner dialogue of Earth going through a mental health breakdown because of the environmental impact on its body. So audiences would go inside the caves in darkness and then listen to this kind of multi-channel audio installation around them in the cave as the cave kind of deter- as the, the kind of the dialogue and the inner dialogue of the earth kind of breaks down kind of surrounding them. That's so powerful. That's so beautiful. For me, just listening to you describe that, I'm thinking about the invitation to enter the cave as a really exquisite kind of invitation. You know, we were speaking before about different modes of what I at least would describe as kind of intimacy with earth, uh, closeness, physical closeness to trees, to land, like dirt. Um, And that piece is bringing people really close. What we've done as well is when everyone people are walking into the caves, we had the caves uh, speakers all over, and as people are walking into the cave, the cave was breathing, so like, <sighs> etc. <laughs> but that kind of resonated a lot. We kind of developed that because caves, kind of in a sense, do breathe. There's hot air and cold air passing through, kind of the, the, the mouth of the cave, and but it became kind of it. That was the, the sound was quite visceral, but you're kind of also on raw ground, on raw earth, uh, gravel, uh, whichever. Now we um, uh, and kind of some caves were like sea caves, so there was still there were like there was bugs, creatures living in these things. We had to work obviously with uh, a lot of environmental specialists to make sure that uh, the projects were kind of. Uh, not harming the environment and the kind of wildlife that we were working with. But one of the things that really worked was bringing people into the, like, like into the outdoors uh, and to discuss the climate emergency whilst in the outdoors. And I think that kind of actually relates a little bit to like a, the philosophy of like nothing about us without us. It's kind of like if we're creating climate inspired work or climate emergency work, it kind of it lands harder or lands stronger when it's within the outdoors, when it's within the environment. But it obviously creates many nuances uh, around bringing audiences with different uh, diverse audiences, which has diverse access needs to these locations. Yeah, I'm actually thinking that, you know, I have had the experience of being in in my life as a wheelchair user. I have I have been able to enter into two different caves. I love caves. This is a very impractical love for me. I love caves. I love I love mountains and high places and all sorts of things that are, you know, my life is full of impractical loves. It's it's all right. But I think there's something here about I actually think it's quite interesting to think about difficulty as a as a part of the experience not to not to skitter past it but to really sort of slow down into the question of what might access look like not as a one size fits all piece and not necessarily to say you know there may be certain spaces that some some of us can't enter. I certainly that's been a part of my own experience 
as a lover of wild places, also acknowledging that there are times and places where I cannot go. But I think it's, to me, it's really quite beautiful to be in the muck of trying to figure out um, access, care, the protection of making sure that there's, you know, that you're working in ways that don't harm the insects, the cave, it's the cave herself, you know, the, the, the land and people. I think that one of the things that doing cross-disability work has really helped me learn is the importance of working slowly and deliberately and in a in a way to to work in a very consultative way, right? To to recognize, for example, that I won't be able to anticipate everyone's access needs from the start. Obviously, as a Whenever I create something, I feel a responsibility to do as much of that preparatory work as I can. But I think there's also something really significant about recognizing access as a kind of open question, a commitment that we make, but a commitment that is also a kind of question like, what do you need? How could you, how could we set things up? that work for you specifically, you know? I find sometimes when we do try and kind of set off projects, we're trying to get access right or environmental impact right, that might kind of stumble us or kind of creates barriers into kind of how to approach things. So I, like, so I've, I'm kind of developed my practice. I have an access policy and a, and a disability policy, and it's kind of about making it a process of like always trying to work from better sustainability and better access within my projects, knowing I'm never going to achieve it. And that's always going to be a process that I have to kind of work with for the rest of my, for all projects I do and kind of keep building on it. So for me, there's also spaces I can't go. So I have, I have a heightened sense, auditory sensory, sensory uh, experience. So there's a lot of spaces that are just far too overwhelming that I cannot enter uh, and have to retreat and back out of. Uh, that are for, for, so I kind of I understand. So I think for a lot of disabled people, there's, there's lots of different barriers that we can all resonate with. but and I'll, but but <laughs> I get really interested when I'm working in outdoor like kind of locations, uh, because and I and and how and those nuances of how to make things more accessible that usually aren't accessible, uh, kind of really excite me because I guess it's like my ADHD brain wants to like think of solutions over and over and kind of connect create connections that aren't quite obvious. My brain, uh, and I think a lot of neurodivergent brains are great or can are great at it. So. When I come, when it's a, a, a problem or a, a, an obstacle that kind of arises, I'm so excited to try and find solutions to it, uh, and I think that's why I love kind of the. That's why I work as an artist's producer rather than just an artist because I lo- I want to make I want I'm excited about how things kind of come to being and how I can create kind of things and working outdoors is one of those situations. My recent project was an audio installation that I done in a castle. A uh, around cl- about climate grief, and uh, we had to bring audiences to uh, to it, bring them out in boats and listen to and lis- sit on the water while listen to this castle perform a lament or a keen, a an Irish keen lamenting the biodiversity loss it's witnessed over its lifetime. I find this idea of of listening to, attending to, being present to the grief of the stones. Right, the grief of the the 
castle itself. There's something about the choice to shift the question of whose grief. Part of what you're doing artistically in this project is asking the audience, those who are present, to tune in to the grief of an entity that I think most dominant modes of cognition would say stones, castle, buildings, right? They're things they don't feel. That's really interesting because I think that for me, uh, one of the things that probably set me on my path of like my career artistic path was I was always fascinated about how other people's thought processes worked that mine didn't seem to work in the same way as other people's. And I, I wasn't seeing things or understanding things the same way. So I, at a very young age, I became kind of a very interested in personifying things uh, and kind of looking like kind of looking at it from another another person or things perspective and I guess that kind of comes back to that when we were talking about vulnerability and empathy earlier on in the conversation so naturally my practice and the way I create kind of so when I kind of personify castles or a uh, caves etc that kind of I think that'd be like that that's why it come that's where maybe it comes to from me because I just I was all I I was I was all I my brain wasn't working the same as others and I wasn't understanding it no one was telling me why that was no one was explaining it and I had to kind of do those activities and find that way around about it for me it really resonates with me and in part I think because I don't think I've ever accepted the dominant notion that um, this distinction between only certain people have feelings that matter. Um, I've always felt a kind of kinship and connection to stones, to trees, to physical objects. I mean, I think about the intimate relationship that I have with my own wheelchair. Um, I've done a, um, an audio project with the Scottish artist Claire Cunningham where we talk about animacy and the relationship that she has as a disabled artist and, and, and performer with her crutches and the, the relationship that I have with my own wheelchair. But for me, it, it extends beyond disability tech and also to my relationship with the world. I remember as a as a young child just not accepting the notion that rocks were like dead things. Um, and so in in that sense, I feel that this kind of kinship that busts out of the expected boundaries and hierarchies, um, I mean, it feels really queer to me. It feels disability related to me. I'm not sure I can trace it quite as precisely as as you do there, but it does feel like something that is a kind of affinity that my own queer disabled sensibility has accentuated. So I love so many aspects of this this project. Another thing that I think is noteworthy to kind of think about or kind of hold within this kind of topic of discussion is kind of access to the outdoors, access to nature. Uh, 
we are increasing a lot of we're increasing access within c- cities and built up environments but we're not necessarily increasing it outdoor kind of outdoor spaces and uh, nature has been nature is becoming a, like a as climate emergency unfolds and, and we go through deeper and deeper into climate change access to nature is becoming more of a, 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 a human right concern which is more prevalent in the disability community uh, and I think that's also why I kind of I, that's why I also why I want to make outdoor works and site specific works is to be able to kind of create these spaces to be able to engage uh, different types of communities to, to, through art and through producing works be able to, to create opportunities to kind of be outdoors to kind of talk about these affinities that we have that I have that that uh, many disabled folk have part of why I create these works in caves and disused or unused structures is kind of again just looking at that kind of looking at what we already have what is out there that I can work with that that kind of gives me inspiration or kind of that we can rather than kind of creating everything from scratch because these locations that I work with are have come with a they're they're a set they're a the, the, and I don't need to build that I don't need to create that a which is yeah yeah that's quite interesting to me thinking about using or being in relationship with the world that is um, with all of its complexity I mean, I think the advantage, you know, right, of of working in a kind of traditional space with smooth floor and a gallery and a museum is, you know, maybe you at least like to think you know what you get. Um, I actually something... find it very difficult to work in those kind of spaces. <laughs> Say more. I because I my the artwork so augmented body altered mind is my my kind of new one of my newest body of works and it does kind of create a work within a kind of a gallery and museum environment I uh, and it's but it was kind of before it took me a while to kind of get to, or to build up a the ability to be able to do that and kind of I learned a lot from kind of immersive experiences of of cave and castle based my cave and castle based works uh, and how I could bring that into a gallery setting and how I can kind of take uh, elements of that so like for me uh, when I create works I kind of try and kind of look at the narrative look at how an audience kind of journey through the entire aspect of the work from booking a ticket or kind of reading it online to journeying to the gallery space or to a cave etc and going through it and I think that uh, and that also comes from an aspect perspective you're kind of creating a social story an easy read or a, a like a, a know before you go guide, but it also a from comes from my neurodivergence. I need to I need to know when I'm when I'm going to event an event. Uh, it's really important for me to know what's happening, probably because uh, of how my brain works and how I need to kind of. I'm very. I kind of I try to explore how an audience member is viewing is how an audience member's sensory experience has been interacted with all the different possible elements of a project and that's just come that comes from my lived experience of like actually if I because if it's if something's off I have to leave or I can't really engage with something because it's really off-putting for me so when you I'm thinking about a couple of the pieces that you've described for us you you talked about the cave the caves, people are immersed in sound um, and it's a dark environment. Um, 
So there's a lot here that's, I think, really striking and probably quite out of the ordinary for most of your, um, I don't know whether you think of folks as audience members or participants or what language you would use there. It goes in between. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I use many different words, but audience or participants or viewers or friends. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the friends, right? Let's go with friends. Um, the friends who are coming in, I... You're, I love this framework of thinking about inviting the friends in for an immersive experience. And I'm hearing you say that it's easier for you to do that in a kind of wild outdoor elemental space than it is in the gallery. And that it actually has taken you quite a bit of work in outdoor spaces to be able to figure out some of the different hallmarks of this immersive experience and then try to create that kind of quality of experience in the more sterile, safe space of the gallery. So I ever I never actually connected that until right now. And that kind of probably comes back to what we were saying earlier about kind of I'm I think my body's made to be out, outdoors. I'm so I found originally creating artworks outdoors was a more it was a kind of a more a way that was a kind of more natural way for me to be. And then kind of moving into gallery settings, kind of I could take that experience and that kind of knowledge in. And that's probably why I started outdoors in that in that way. Uh, and now I obviously I've had lots of help <laughs> to be able to bring my, my work indoors from many different curators and uh, collaborators like Mara. Uh, some augmented body, other mine is kind of the more most recent uh, indoor work, which was kind of curated by Marek Walensky uh, who was and commissioned by originally commissioned by Carlo Arts Festival who were ext- really supportive and kind of the, and nurturing and developing uh, my journey uh, into that artwork and I think collaborations is also a huge part of who what my, my practice and work uh, I kind of I, I really I, I come to life when interacting with people and I connect. I seem to, I, I connect really well I, with, with people and I love it. That's the part, best part of who, um, life for me <laughs> is in interacting with people. And I, that, which is why my practice is highly collaborative. Uh, but that, but also uh, I know that just, just think when I started learning about my neurodiversity, uh, I started also learning about why I wasn't able to do certain things. Like I wasn't able to write a script. I wasn't able to, and I'm not able to, and I don't like, I'm sorry. No, I am able to, <laughs> but it's, it takes more concentration and energy uh, for me to do these things. So when I started collaborating, I was able to ex- put my energy into the areas that I excel at, like bringing people together, con- uh, bringing con- collaborators, connecting who might be good at who. Oh, if they're they're good at this thing and they're good at that thing, actually. But they, what if we connect them? Uh, they could. What could we could do something there? Uh, which is. That, so, which is why I work which is my practice my, my practice is extremely collaborative and I think that's very important for me and I think it's also very and it's also important I think a lot for, for disabled folk to kind of or we resonate a lot with with it uh, about kind of building community sharing uh, kind of experiences and learning from each other 
Yeah, I think about collaboration as a disability strategy. You were talking about script writing not being the thing that lights you up, right? (laughs) Of course, you can do it, um, but it costs so much. I've been really interested in thinking about collaboration as a way to think differently about how to tap and invite people to sort of bring different Look, it's not just strengths. I think it's also pleasures. Like, what do you like? What do you want? What makes the work feel good? I love the way that it seems that's a part of collaboration for you as well, sort of figuring out how to um, read and recognize these different affinities and strengths and um, bring folks together who might really enjoy working together that's again i think we 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 kind of connect over that because that's exactly that's what you do in your practice with your initiatives and archives uh and i think that's kind of one of the reasons why we connect with each other on this i also think that like if we are going to make change or kind of we're looking at we're all here trying to make more positive change or kind of make do do kind of live better and if we we can only live, I I want to live better by living together. Interestingly, one of the influences for augmented body altered mind, the brain computer interface work on neurodiversity and climate change, was new theory of evolution called complementary cognition, spearheaded by Helen Taylor from University of Strathclyde, and they proposed that evolution purposefully creates people who are neurodivergent to each other, because in a community, if you have many people whose brains actively think different to each other, then they have a better chance of working together and creatively coming up with a solution out of a, to get themselves out of a problem. So I, and obviously, so the, the artwork then looks at that through kind of the, the biggest challenge we're, we're all facing is climate change and how can we work together to collaborate to rethink our way out of the solution. But I think that that speaks the same to, that kind of speaks to like how humans are meant to live, we, we, we live collaboratively, we're collaborative creatures uh, and the, the more diverse perspectives that they that we have will give it will allow us to kind of come up with the best solutions that's been a really important principle that undergirds a lot of my own thinking and practice around uh, censoring disability insights in the climate change conversation exactly that right that sense that Disabled people have knowledge and expertise and understanding that the world needs, right? We need these different ways of working and thinking and perceiving and experiencing. And, you know, and I think especially the recognition that the kind of complexity that disability and neurodiversity or neurodivergence bring to this conversation, that complexity may in fact actually be a deep asset. One of the things that will will most help us make connections and draw insights that we haven't yet been able to make and that we really desperately need. Alan, I think we could uh, we could go on for hours. This has been an extraordinary conversation. It has been a huge pleasure to be in conversation with you today. Thank you so much. 
Oh, Julia, that the pleasure is, I, I feel like the pleasure is all mine. I feel like I've gotten, I've been so enriched by this conversation. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you to Disability Arts Online for the opportunity to for this discussion and for the content takeover. Thank you all very much. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for listening. We do hope you've enjoyed this episode of Disability And. Next month, Mind the Gaps associate producer Paul Wilshaw chats with artist and activist James Ledbetter about his work around mental health.